Is shoplifting on the rise? We dissect new reporting from the New York Times and talk with some of our local bodega owners. Then we'll pivot to a story about the unluckiest generation, millennials, but are they really so unlucky? We speak to a writer from the Atlantic who argues that millennials are doing just fine. Finally, we talk to an expert and a journalist on artificial intelligence regulation. Is it the right time? Will it ever be the right time? All of this on today's The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everyone. I'm Robbie Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. I finally closed on this house I've been trying to close on for a oh, year. Congrats. This apartment in New York City, which actually is relevant because we're going to talk about millennial homeownership in a little bit. So I'm back to being a millennial homeowner. I was in Nashville and then I sold that house when I left Nashville. So now I'm, as I, as I enter my 40s, which happens next week, I am now a proud owner of a apartment in Borham Hill, Brooklyn. Brooklyn, Are you going to have an identity crisis when you turn You're 40? a gentrifier, Robbie. I'm a gentrifier. Well, I was born in Brooklyn. So I hmm. actually, I was born in a way less fancy neighborhood of Brooklyn than the one I'm moving into. So I'm not, I think it's the opposite, isn't it? If you move from a less fancy neighborhood to a fancy neighborhood that you were born in, I don't know. I think you get the excuse because you were born there. You there. Go. That's fine. I, as, I, as I see it, I'm moving to the suburbs. So we'll see. <laughs> Uh, All right. (laughs) Well, Joe, you took to the streets. Our first story here, we're going to talk about shoplifting around the country and whether it's on the rise. And we're going to start with New York City, where you took to the streets, Joe, and you talk to your, uh, you're like a little regular Thomas Friedman here. But instead of talking to your taxi driver, you talk to bodega owners. Have you been experiencing more shoplifting at your store re- recently? Yeah, there have been a lot of lifts over here. Yeah, you know, uh, in the grocery store, we face, sometimes we face this sort of things. What do they I, usually take? They uh, come for the beer. They are repeated offenders or is it different, different people? No, no, different, different. Most of them, they're homeless, or they're facing problems. Have you caught anyone in real time shoplifting from your store? No, I don't. No. Yeah, yeah, here it's a lot of security and all that. No one comes. Yeah, I've noticed that a lot of items are sealed over here. Is that because there was a lot of shoplifting here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Across the street, someone tried to steal like uh, a couple of uh, cigarettes and all that cartons. Once uh, here, a guy tried to steal like uh, three or four hundred dollars of carton. We caught him through the camera and we handed over him to the, you know, the police. They haven't done anything. They just filed a case and then, you know, they just gave him the warning and that's it. Two months ago, my boss was uh, on the duty and one white guy came and asked for the beer. He refused to give him and he attacked. Then he called the police. Yeah, so I want to give you guys a couple data points before we get into this. The first is from a recent report by John Jay Research, uh, which found that thefts of items worth less than $1,000 jumped 53% between 2019 and 2022 at major commercial spots in the city. And then another recent article in the New York Times revealed that nearly a third of all shoplifting arrests in the city last year involved just 327 people, and those 327 people were arrested and re-arrested more than 6,000 times, which is absurd, absolutely absurd. So yeah, I took took to the streets of New York, um, particularly the East Village, and to be honest with you, I was a little surprised as to how many people said shoplifting was a big issue. The clips that I had, there were only two people who were willing to talk out of the 10 establishments I went to, mostly bodegas. Um, you mean talk on the air or talk at all? Talk on air. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the ones who who didn't want to talk on air seemed to think that shoplifting wasn't too big of an issue for them. But again, we're we're seeing the the uptick mostly in commercial department stores and uh, pharmacies. Mm-hmm. So I'll have to go there next. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, we had Alvin Bragg, who's the district attorney, on right before he took office, and he and I had a back and forth about this, where essentially what I was saying is like, you're painting these shoplifters like they're you know the the average homeless person trying to yeah. steal. Um, but 
what happens when there are organized groups who take advantage of some of the loopholes here? And in, in, there are different versions of this in every city. There's a there's a San Francisco version of this. There's a Portland version of this, et cetera. And we'll get to some of those. But in New York, the unique situation here, when Bragg took office, he promised not to charge shoplifters for stealing stuff worth, worth less than $250. And he wasn't exactly enthusiastic about taking people on who were stealing stuff above that. That combined with New York City's bail reform law and that's just a general conversation around policing. What's happening here? Why you have three? 300-something people uh, getting arrested more than 6,000 times is that the police and the district attorney are two different entities. So the police mm-hmm. are going to arrest these people because the law is still the law. But Bragg is like, it's kind of a revolving door over there. And that's why you're seeing that. And Joe, one of the reasons why you got a mixed response from the bodega owners is actually the bodegas aren't bearing the brunt of this, as you mentioned. Drugstores saw a 534% increase from 2014. Um, or it's either 2014 or 2006 uh, in uh, petty thefts, as we call these. Um, they're having twice as many thefts in 2022 compared with 2019. Uh, so that's rising from six thousand, around 6,000 to 12,000. And <clears throat> chain stores are seeing some kind of equivalent increase, 346% increase from 2006 uh, and a huge jump year over year, 2022 to 2021. And this is why the politics of this aren't quite yet explosive enough because I think a lot of New Yorkers look at big corporations and they shrug. But I think if that CVS no longer existed on your corner, you'd have some thoughts. Well, I mean, I'm seeing so many chain pharmacies closing in the city, 100%. I mean, I can't say that that's completely causal, but I'll tell you one place where New Yorkers absolutely should care is when you call 911 in the city, the response times suck. Like they, it takes, unless you're in imminent danger, you'll get a cop showing up like an hour later, which at at which point, like I had, I had to call 911 at one point. And by the time the cops came, I was like, there's no point in, in this. Like the person mm-hmm. who chased me and threatened me is already <laughs> off to the next person. You know, I had, a, um, I had a, I have a story about that before you move off of that. I got my Vespa stolen. If you guys remember my green Vespa that used to be in the office, I got it stolen. I think it must've been last summer at this point. And the cops took eight hours to show up. Eight like hours. At, at which point? From a who, stolen vehicle. <laughs> which, you know, that. so if you're a New Yorker who's, who's saying, oh, I don't really care because it's CVS and toothpaste. Well, if the cops are spending their time 6,000 times in one year on 327 people arresting them because they just have to arrest them and rearrest them and rearrest them. And they just keep showing back up and committing the same crimes. Like that's what's happening when you call 911. They're busy dealing with this shit, which is absolutely inexcusable. It's not their fault that they're arresting people. And then, you know, two seconds later, they're back out doing the exact same thing. But it's very obvious to me from the ground level that this is organized retail crime. I've seen the same person three times in my, when I lived in Chelsea, my, um, my local pharmacy, you know, I'm not living in my pharmacy. I go there from time to time. Three times I saw the exact same person waltz in with a huge trash bag and just sweep entire shelves worth of products into a bag and just walk out because I don't blame the pharmacy owners. Like I'm not, I'm not a, or a, the employees. I'm not going to put my life on the line for some toothpaste or risk someone pulling out a knife or something. And so they're just like, whatever, I'll look the other way. They don't even call the police anymore sometimes. Well, before we broaden this out to talk about the national scene, Joe, there was this case of this guy named Wilfred Ocasio uh, that I think illustrates at least what's happening here in New York and what some of our listeners outside of New York might be experiencing. Joe, you want to just explain what happened with this guy? Yeah, this guy's so interesting. So he he previously had two stints in, in state prison after a rape and robbery conviction. Uh, he was originally arrested in November of 2022 uh, and was charged with 33 separate retail thefts. But after the arrest, the prosecutor assigned the case to only five charges on two counts of petty theft instead of the total 33 charges. At the time, the prosecutor said that he was only moving forward with two charges because filing all 33 would be a uh, waste of resources. Then in December, uh, prosecutors from Bragg's office basically just changed their tunes, asking the judge to finally set bail on Ocasio. Um, but this guy was, you know, out on the streets uh, for for really uh, years um, committing these crimes. And uh, I think the, 
I have the statistic here. Uh, the prosecutor said that he stole $5,000 worth of goods from a Dwayne Reed from November 18th to December 26th. That's, that's eight days, $5,000 worth of products <laughs> that he was, yeah, that's pretty impressive. Well, and this is what you what get at when- him on. Right. Yeah. in just one place. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, yeah. So, uh, and this is not just a New York phenomenon. So nationally, Whole Foods just closed a temporary, uh, a location temporarily in San Francisco, citing worker safety, prompting the uh, a member of the Board of Supervisors, Matt Dorsey, to announce that he wants to introduce legislation to amend the city charter and get the police department fully staffed within five years. Fund the police now is what we're hearing, uh, which is interesting and great to hear. Walmart announced it will shut four of its stores in Chicago um, just weeks after they shuttered stores in Portland. Uh, Walgreens had previously cited shoplifting as a reason to close five stores in San Francisco in 2021. They walked that back a bit, I would say, after that. Uh, and so there, there, this, there is a trend, and we'll get to some of this data uh, about what retailers are saying, because the police data is really hard to parse. We've talked yeah. about this previously. Local police departments are horrible at sharing data with the FBI, which is the the way we basically roll this up. And they classify things differently. So it's really hard. In some cases, uh, they, they group all robbery together. So it's hard to parse out what's the petty theft versus armed robbery, et cetera. Uh, but there is better data. But by and large, anecdotally, this does seem to be a trend in certain blue cities. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I just, I understand Bragg's idea of saying if someone is stealing less than a certain amount of money, then maybe they're scrapping by, they're, they're stealing food, they're stealing necessities. But, I mean, just... What does two hundred and fifty dollars mean? Like when we when we draw these completely arbitrary values and we say nothing under that actually really matters in the end, and and the law is just there as a performative act until you reach some some arbitrary threshold. Like what? I mean, it just, just a lack degrades. Of yeah, it just yeah. degrades law and order. And like, as much as you don't want to go after people for for small crimes or for first offenses, when you have that sense that nothing really matters if you if you don't hit a threshold, combined with the fact that ca the end of cash bail for misdemeanors and nonviolent felonies, so you can just get arrested and then waltz back out and get arrested thousands of times. I mean. It's it's a mockery of of what it means to live in a civil society. Let me explain how this how this comes to pass. So back when Bragg was running for DA, I was his, uh, one of his advisors, and I would attend these forums with him where there were candidates, believe it or not, most of which were to the left of him. And so what they would do is they would get up and say things like, you know, and some of them were former public defenders and things like that, and they would get up and say, and they combined multiple things together. And this is where the bail stuff comes in and then the repeat offender laws and things like that. They'll be like, I defended this person who was stealing a candy bar and they went to jail for six months. And everybody's like, oh no. And so it prompts people to, in these forums, including people like Bragg to say, you know what, I will make sure that we, you know, we don't prosecute people below a certain threshold. So it leads to more and more promises. Now, the mm -hmm. context that's left out is that person who's going to jail for six months for stealing that candy bar is a many-time repeat offender. And in some of these cases, like Chase Budina, who we talked about a lot, who was recalled in San Francisco as a district attorney, uh, there's debates around how we treat repeat offenders. He was basically saying we shouldn't take a lot of that criminal history into account. Uh, there's also the question around bail, which overlaps with this as well. And then there's a question of, I think, worldview. Whereas I think, depending on where you grew up, you have different views of human nature. Uh, and it, it reminds me in a way of some some of the, the, the conversation around Andrew Tate, interestingly. Because it's like, if you grew up around people who are sociopaths, or you grew up in environments that where there are people who are kind of like they're not everybody's evil, but there is evil around you and you've dealt with people who are, you know, are willing to cross any line, uh, then you're willing, then, then what you're willing to tolerate uh, in terms of the law, I think is, it, it changes. So like for, in my case, I grew up in, in a neighborhood of Staten Island where there were people who stole all the time. Uh, a lot of my friends would, you know, shoplift all the time. Uh, and then there were people who did a lot worse things than that. So when I see a law that says, you know, people who you could you could basically get away with stealing below 250. I'm like, yeah, that 
tons of people are going to take advantage of that. And then I look at my mm -hmm. progressive friends who grew up in Pleasantville, and they're like, oh, why would anybody other than a homeless person take advantage of that? And like, yeah, let's just use Walgreens as our food kitchen. Um, and so I think it's mm -hmm. a difference of worldview. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think it also, like, it's just a... a it, it fundamentally undermines our sense of justice in a, in a way that is really disturbing to me. And I feel like, you know, being on the streets in New York, I've seen it happen myself. Every time you have to go to like, I, I tried to buy halo top the other day and I had to ask an employee to come over and bring a key and open the freezer for me so I could get a pint of ice cream. Like that's just the most ridiculous thing. I, that's not, that's not something What's that we halo do. Top? Halo Top's like the, it's like a healthy ice cream alternative. Um, it has a lot of protein Healthy in it. ice cream. Well, healthier. We're to fact it's check like, that. It's like, yeah, uh, healthier. Healthier than a, yeah, like I'm the whole pint's finding got like any healthy ice 350 cream calories or something like that. It's yeah. healthier. It's, <laughs> I've, a, I've, it's a healthier I found alternative. this keto stuff. There's this keto know, ice cream they sell over at the Mul Mulberry Market, by the way. and They have keto Halo listen, Top. Listen, people. Be careful with that stuff. It, it does weird things to you. But okay, the, let's talk about the data. Let's let's zoom out to the data for a second because I promise well, there is some data Let me back up for here. just one second on that point. Because no more ice cream my point talk? being, yeah, because the point being, there's an there's an employee who's getting paid probably close to minimum wage who has to go over and spend their entire day unlocking toothpaste and ice yeah. cream. And that is so demoralizing when someone will waltz in and steal probably what you're going to make an entire day and you're the the person that's there that's grinding that's working that's job now is to be the person with the ice cream keys like what sort of society is that so okay there's this it's such fascinating segue to this piece of data so according to a survey conducted by the national retail federation uh the stolen merchandise cost retail is 94 billion in 2021 which is up from 90 billion the year before so basically inflation. So not much of an increase. Uh, another group puts it at a different number. So the overall change is not that much different. So, uh, but interestingly, external theft only represented a portion, uh, uh, a small portion of overall losses, or not small, but uh, smaller than you'd think. The largest share is roughly two thirds of missing merchandise as a result of employee theft. So there are some of those people you're talking about unlocking I'm the sure cabinet. I'm sure that's not true in, and they're taking in it. Manhattan. I'm sure that the the differential is is much larger somewhere like here. I'm not blaming and it's the interesting. There's certain there's certain locations that they have. Apparently, they have like a more. I've been asking pharmacy employees about this just because I'm curious. And there's certain locations that apparently are like very much targets for it. Um, for sure. I don't know. No, no pun but, intended. Uh, but yeah, the for sure this is a thing that seems to be particularly true of these CVS, Walgreens, etc. Um, yeah. I I think you're going to start to see like a sort of a. a subunit like private security forces that only police those types of places because they're some of the most profitable business. If you ever look at the margins on some of these places, they're so profitable. So I think that's why there's so much focus on them. Like you go through your drugstore and you don't realize the sheer density of expensive things that are on the shelf compared to, for instance, a clothing store. Right. Like, you know, yeah. you get it like the most expensive thing you steal from a clothing store is going to be a fairly conspicuous thing to steal, whereas the most expensive thing in a pharmacy could be really small uh, and mm -hmm. they need a lot of it. Right. There's a lot of stuff on the shelves that's really expensive. So anybody who's like a millennial out there or older, you'll know Supermarket Sweep is the strategy of that TV show is all about that kind of concept that sometimes the smallest, most expensive things are the things you want to take. But. With that said, um, retailers on average saw a 26.5% increase in organized retail crime nationally in 2021. So once again, this is a national issue. Uh, and organized retail crime, uh, this is basically meant like theft committed by a group of professional shoplifters. Uh, and so this stuff is, is major, but it's not like I don't want to blow it out of proportion. The National Retail Foundation um or federation estimates that organized retail crimes cost companies an average of seven cents per hundred dollars in sales. Now that's still a lot. That's like a seven percent tax, right, on everything they do. But it's still seven cents. So depending on how you read that, you know, if I increased your taxes by seven percent, you probably have a lot to say about it. 
Yeah. I mean, one final point that I'll make here is I get a lot of flack for being the law and law and order libertarian sometimes. And I think some people view that as values in conflict, but I think there's like one of the most fundamental libertarian things is believing in minimal laws, minimal regulation, but also that the laws that we have in place should be careful enough and prudent enough and thought through enough and important enough that they actually get seen through. Mm -hmm. And so for me, seeing this degradation of law and order and the fact that we're just going to flout what regulations we do have and what, what laws and what rules we have to participate in a civil society is just so frustrating. <laughs> like I can't even explain it, but I don't think that there well, you guys is... believe in private property too. Like, so I think that's yeah. probably like yeah. the bedrock principle at work here. Right. You guys, I thought you were a libertarian now. No. Well, I'm, I, I would say I'm, uh, you know, you know, my position on this, I think I'm more libertarian, but I don't like, I feel weird using the label libertarian because I'm complicated because mm -hmm. I do believe in very expansive public works. I just want them to like, I want fewer of them done better, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. you know, expansive government programs about certain things. I just want the government to be really good at carrying those out. So the ongoing discussion. So you before we, uh, before we move on, I do want to mention one study from uh, New York University professor of nutrition, food studies, and public health, Mary Nessel, who said healthy ice cream is an oxymoron. Uh, no Joe, are you asleep many... right now? <laughs> 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 well, I wanted to. I, I wanted wanna, to address. I want to mention what everyone's uh, thinking about right now. <laughs> no matter how many organic or natural ingredients, or how little fat and sugar it contains, ice cream is not healthy. Healthy error. Healthier. There's a lot of protein wow. in Halo Top. Fight me. We'll have to have a segment on this. All right. Shall we talk about my generation? Sure. Yeah, Ricky, our generation is 100% superior. And I know everyone on this podcast agrees with that, especially Ravi. By the way, let me pause you now. We have video. Uh, Let's get all wow. three faces on the screen here. Like in the comments, before we tell you what generation everybody is, let's uh, let's just hear in the comments on YouTube what generation you think Joe is, Ricky is, or I am based on all that. My I hairline actually looks gave myself really away. Today. I gave myself away. This is an at, HR at violation. Yeah, this is Rob, you're ageist. You're harassing Joe. You have an ageist man on the pod. Okay. All right, so let's let get back to it. So since, two, since the 20, 2008 financial crisis, the narrative surrounding the millennial generation or people born between 1981 and 1996 has been pretty clear. They are screwed. The Washington Post has called them the unluckiest generation and headlines have popped up across the media claiming millennials are worse off than their parents and are so broke they're ruining their parents' retirements. But what if millennials were actually doing pretty okay? According to a new article from Gene Twenge in The Atlantic, millennial households were making more money than their silent generation baby boomer and generation X counterparts at the same age. And that's after taking uh, inflation uh, into account. Ravi, as one of our older millennials here, do you think you guys are doing just okay? Uh it's complicated, and I think it's worth taking a step back to talk about like what the defining characteristics of this generation are, right? Every every generation has a defining characteristics. I think, unfortunately, for Gen Z, for Ricky, and perhaps you, Joe, I guess the <laughs> you, you you allegedly allegedly you too, but uh, we you guys, it's the COVID. Uh, crisis obviously that will define millennials but they're adults and in, mm. in a way different stage of life dealing with it for us there are a couple of defining characteristics that i think will come into play when we talk about how people are doing one is that you have one foot in the non-digital space and one foot in the digital space that's millennials basically as the world was becoming um you know, dominated by things like social media platforms, we were in high school and college. You know, essentially the, the transition from AOL Instant Messenger to Gchat to Facebook to Twitter and Instagram happened from our teens until our mid-20s. And so that's a defining characteristic. The other is the financial crisis 2008 basically hit us as we were hitting the job market. And that was also happening as people were shipping off to fight in the Iraq war and Afghanistan war. And so those are defining characteristics. And then, of course, you've got soaring college costs and healthcare costs at the same time. 
So all of that is happening at the same time in early data, as Twangy points out, and Ricky, you had a chance to talk to her. Uh, early data seems to suggest, or su suggested back when I was in my early 30s and late 20s, that millennials were worse off. But across income wealth and home ownership, a lot of that data has turned around. It doesn't, it's not all conclusive, but it seems like the picture is significantly better today for that generation from a strictly economic perspective than people thought just a few years ago. Yeah. And I think like the myth that millennials are uniquely uh, poor, doing poorly in terms of American generations just does not really die, despite the fact that the data is pretty clear, I think, on a lot of different metrics. Um, I completely agree with Twanky. But like the idea that like the Washington Post would run that the millennials are the unluckiest generation in U.S. history, even if those numbers held steady. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I'm pretty sure that is a very grotesque overstatement. Like at least we didn't have a civil war or anything was like that. Was that the actual sentence? They said That history? was the actual headline, which is insane. In U.S. history? Are you kidding me? They're not even the, in my opinion, you know, like there's a generation of, I guess the oldest Americans around could have been like in like the World War II generation still. So I'm not going to buy that. Um, that exaggerated claim, but to to put some more meat on the bones of some actual issues that millennials are facing that are unprecedented. Um, when I spoke to Jean Twenge, who actually just came out with a book um, called Generations, which goes through uh, the five living American generations. I read it. It was very interesting. Um, she, she put some meat on the bones to some of the actual issues that millennials are facing. So it's not to say that there's nothing at all whatsoever. No, I, I think there is, you know, some truth to the idea of millennials struggling financially when you kind of dig deeper. So for one thing, one reason median incomes are up is because more millennials went to college. But then often, then that means having college loans to pay. So that's an extra expense that you have to factor in there. The other piece is, and this is mostly good news, almost all of the gains for um, in, the, in recent years have been for women. So millennial and Gen Z women are making a lot more money than, for example, boomers were at the same age. The difficulty there is you're part of, if you're part of a heterosexual couple and you want to have children, and then you have to think, well, is one of us going to quit, quit a job or go part-time, or are we going to have to pay for childcare? With women making more money, the family loses out on a bigger chunk of income if, for example, the woman cuts back, you know, on on her hours or quits completely, you know, or if both keep working and then they have to pay for childcare. And childcare has outpaced the pace of inflation. So there there are some real reasons why millennials may feel poor, even if they aren't by the initial numbers. Ricky, let's take yeah. a let's go through each one of these categories. Income homeownership, and wealth. So income, we've kind of talked about it already, but the key data here, and this is from a passage from Twingy's piece in The Atlantic, is by 2012, the median household income of 25 to 35-year-olds had dropped 13% from its peak in 2000. So essentially at that point, millennials were doing worse than the generation that came before them. But by the mid-2010s, that started to turn around, and by 2019, households headed by millennials were making considerably more money than those headed by the silent generation, baby boomers, and Generation X at the same age after adjusted for inflation. Now, that is good news on the income front, and that was true of all racial groups. But the two exceptions were men and people with less education. So those are the groups, and obviously we've talked a lot about this trend, Ricky. Yeah. Those groups are doing worse. Yeah, I mean, that's also not a, a very small <laughs> Mm -hmm. statement to say that men are doing worse than and women are doing better like most of the the increase that we're seeing is women just vastly outpacing in terms of closing this gap and then in some points outstripping and by some really important metrics like college graduation rates as well and i think um you know i've said this before on the podcast and i it, absolutely no one should extrapolate this for as me saying that there's any negative that there are more women in the workforce but i do think that one of the direct consequences is that like the child care market has changed so considerably that 
they're were able to just be charged so much more money than would even be feasible back in a time when a single income household was the situation or the norm. Um, and so to Twingy's point, um, there are 64% of millennials that haven't had um, children are saying that the expense of childcare is part of the reason. But then there's also um, shifting priorities and some people just choosing not to have kids. Um, I think a lot of people look at that, the number of um, like 1.66 being the replacement rate right now for millennials and think that it might all be financial, but there is just cultural change. Mm. But, you know, there is truth to the fact that even though childcare has been going up, um, other costs of having a child adjusted for the rate of inflation um, and the cost of living have gone down, including, you know, having, getting a car, you might need a new car when you have a, when you have a kid, um, the cost of toys, the cost of clothing, furniture, electronics. And so there are some expenses associated with having a kid that have gone down, but I think you know, certainly as we've seen women change so dramatically in the um, in the workforce and their role, um, childcare has become an enormous issue. And, right. and that makes kind of perfect sense. And millennials are the test case for that. Yeah, it's also worth mentioning that the, the, the floor has increased. Uh, so uh, the amount of people in poverty is less than for other generations as well, in part because of the expansion of the Affordable Care Act and certain aggressive interventions during COVID, which we could talk about and we have debated before. Uh, Gen X, interestingly, so the people who came before millennials, uh, it's worth noting they also entered the job market during a recession. It wasn't as steep a recession as the 2008 crisis, but it was a recession. But most importantly, just to give some credit, uh, the boomers, they entered the job market during the longest period of falling or stagnant wages, which is basically the 70s to the mid-90s. So when I think about my parents, they were dealing with a actually much worse from a perspective of income environment. And this is a good segue to talk about homeownership because they also had an interesting homeownership experience. Because yes, homes were way cheaper back then for that generation, but interest rates, if you look at interest rate charts, were insane. <laughs> to buy a house back mm -hmm. then compared to even today where we have high interest rates. Like it was crazy what like thinking about the mortgages people were taking. In the out high in the teens, 80s, right? For examples. Yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy to think yeah. about. And it makes sense anecdotally. My you know, my parents split pretty early, but my dad was a doctor and is a doctor and my mom is a nurse. And we lived in like, you know, like we, we were not living in, we didn't even live in a house for most of my early childhood. And we were living in like really small apartment blocks. Um, it seemed like they were going paycheck to paycheck. It seemed like they were making a lot of sacrifices. Like, like you just think about if that was the experience of a doctor and a nurse in the eighties, like it was just kind of a weird time to think about. It. I think mm. credit people, I, I don't think like take seriously enough, like what access to cheap credit has done for millennials. And Ricky, beyond even access to cheap credit, the inflation in housing, it seems, is being overstated, huh? Yeah. And also just one one point that I think like we see millennials as the um great recession generation, but in terms of home ownership, it's that's Gen X more than millennials. Millennials were still young enough at that point in time that they weren't really going into that market. But yeah, I spoke to Gene Twenge about um the issue of housing costs as well. So I think that's been another piece of, of contention. People said, well, you know, it might make more money, but houses cost four times as much. Um, well, I'd heard of that too at some point, but the statistics now don't seem to back that up. So if you look, there's a really, really fascinating chart that I just put up on my Twitter account, looking at the cost of living across different areas. Housing, even I was surprised to see this, increased at about the same rate of inflation, maybe just slightly more in these statistics. Um, what has really outpaced the pace of inflation is college education, childcare, healthcare. But then the chart also shows other things that are actually less expensive than they used to be. So pretty much all consumer electronics are less, uh, cars actually are less. So there's the clothing. Um, there's lots and lots of things that are also pretty important that are less expensive than they used to be. And so just to put a figure behind this, if you look at um, 25 to 39 year olds, when boomers were that age, 50% owned a home and millennials, it's 48%. So that's pretty negligible, the difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the 
you know, homeownership is a reflection also of wealth. But I think, I think that just and like just to get behind what all that data is saying, what 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 defines millennials? I think is the timing they entered the market for buying homes. The mm-hmm. homes, in many ways, in certain cases, were more expensive. Like she pours some cold water and how much more expensive homes were uh, over the past ten years than in previous generations, but. Like taking as a given that that home prices are increasing in a lot of markets in America, whether they're keeping pace or exceeding inflation or not, uh, interest rates were super low at certain points and like historically low. And so at a certain point, if you timed it right, which a lot of millennials, it was like the perfect timing. People in their 30s entering the housing market. A lot of my friends in Nashville are like real estate moguls now. Like I know like teachers who've bought up multiple pieces of property over the past 15 years. And even anecdotally worked for me because like even at a point of like hardship, I would say, which was when I was leaving being a school principal and running Republic to wanting to take a year off, I had purchased a very cheap home in East Nashville for like a price that would be insane today. Um, and then I resold it three years later for double the price. Uh, and I was mm-hmm. able to use the difference between those two things uh, to subsidize a year off to start Arena. The next thing I did. Now, in hindsight, I should have just taken a loan and kept that house because it would be worth four times as much. But that's what the experience of a lot of people. It's just like, hey, like your income is one thing, but if you happen to time the market right, which for millennials is very convenient to do so, you, you can make a killing. Whereas Gen X had the opposite uh, experience. They Their timing yeah. coincided with the real estate crash in many ways in 2008. Like their, their sort of payout was during the crash. Yeah. And one of the points that um, that Twingy made in her um, Atlantic article that I thought was kind of funny is that, you know, there's the the bias in terms of how we talk about these issues and the fact that most millennial journalists live in New York or mm-hmm. D.C. and in urban areas where that same appreciation hasn't really happened in the same way in the housing market where right. housing is a very different reality. And so the media ends up having getting swept away by these blinders that admittedly I have and I'm, and I, I mean, I think all of us have, we're mm-hmm. all New Yorkers. Um, and there's Appreciate another it. cause that's interesting in, in terms of um, like how, how have millennials sustained this sense that they're the least lucky generation? Well, part of it could just be the social media and the kind of keeping up with the Joneses thing being just turned up to a degree that it never has been before in a sense that everyone else is doing better and and your mm-hmm. expectations should be higher because everyone's kind of advertising their best selves online, um, which For you sure. know could be a factor because it, I think it's true that millennials had a period of time where they were behind, but it's, and, I'm, and obviously this varies enormously from person to person and, and area to area. And so it's not to just to paint with a broad brush, but there seems to be a lack of a kind of recovery of the conversation back towards um, the reality that that millennials have. Yeah, I would say like if I were to, if there should be a mantra for millennials. It's the comparison is the thief of joy. It's like don't worry about mm-hmm. anybody else because like honestly, like if you're a billionaire, you're looking over your shoulder at the billionaire who's got more money than you. Like there's just no end to that. Uh, one yeah. last piece. Gen of Z di- is terrible. Yeah, you guys are going to have an even more pronounced version of this for sure, probably already do. Uh, That last wealth piece, uh, so there's a lot of data that's been kicked around, Fed data around the wealth gap that up until recently showed a pretty significant wealth gap between millennials and previous generations. But as Twangy points out in her piece, uh, recent analysis by the Fed uh, through the middle of 2020, data through the middle of 2022, has shown that average millennial wealth to be neck and neck with the wealth of Gen X at the same age. Now, I suspect boomers did better. I'm not totally sure about this. And silent generation boomers probably did better, but I'm not 100% sure on that. But at least compared to Gen X, they're doing about the same. Well, Ravi, do you feel empowered? It's not so bad for you. I honestly, like... I'm not in this, I'm not in this like woe is me category or blame your parents, which I think some of this takes this like, you know, even when yeah. I hear Scott like, Galloway. Okay, boomer vibes. Yeah, yeah. Here Galloway, who I be- imagine is a Gen Xer, talks about this and he talks about us like we're this generation in crisis who are getting screwed and he's written so many books about it. And once again, I like Galloway. But 
I, I don't feel like we're the victims. Like, I do think, like, you know, my brother who shipped off to Afghanistan or people like my friend Ryan Miller who shipped off to Iraq and lost a leg, like, those are victims of stupid uh, Gen X and boomer decisions. But I don't think of, like, this economic situation that we're in as, like, some, like, assault on millennials that we, like, should feel aggrieved over. I actually think we were handed a very decent economic situation after the crisis, post-crisis. Crisis was real to a lot of generations' stupid decisions. But, um, and I think we've done, you know, decently well, and I don't think we have any reason to blame anybody else. And hopefully Gen Z will feel the same way when we hand you guys this economy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I'll layer in one more piece before we move on. Uh, back in 2018, a Harvard doctoral student found in his research that among diabetics, eating half a cup of ice cream a day was associated with a lower risk of heart oh disease. Oh my God, yeah. So the risk reduction was almost exclusively associated with low-fat and non-fat dairy foods. So there could mm-hmm. be a benefit. Well, you've woken Joe's up, on Joe. a different podcast. <laughs> well, at least, Joe, did you eat some sugar between this one reading and the last one you did? I'm He's just, doing I'm noticing ASMR. An your energy. It's, it's just ASMR whispering. Yeah. I'm Oof. just making sure okay. the audience is aware. Just save this clip. Maybe we'll do a bedtime stories podcast so you can put some of our audience to sleep. Ariane is the host of the Daisy Crime podcast at The Lost Debate. No, we're not The Lost Debate anymore. We are The Branch. And he, well, the show is The Lost Debate, but he's not hosting that show through this show. You know what I mean? So this is the, uh, this is the number one true crime podcast in India and a top 10 podcast on any given week in India that exposes, you know, in a lot of cases, unsolved crimes. Uh, a lot of times gender-based violence, sometimes political violence in India. Uh, Ariane has looked into a slate of artificial intelligence bills uh, and the debate around legislating artificial intelligence. So, Ariane, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, Ravi, for that succinct introduction. Um, you know, in the battle <laughs> between... <laughs> but, Sorry. You know, in I'm the... Bad. I should just be like, Ariane, the audience knows you by now. I should just be like, Ariane, welcome to the podcast. That's yeah, I talked about tattoos time. in the previous one. Now, AI, I yeah. think it's um, yeah. perfectly a good segue. But, you know, in the battle between Gen Z and millennials, there's a generation sitting back silently looking at us squabble about our petty plebeian issues while they are preparing to inherit a very different world. And that's Generation Alpha, which might actually be defined by AI, stable diffusion, and these large language you know, models that we are um, currently grappling with. Hmm. New, yeah, gen- is that what we call them? Generation Alpha? Yeah. yeah. Born after that's 2010. Think, uh, so we restart the alphabet. <laughs> I, I I've mentioned this previously on the podcast, but I was reading um, like New York Post submissions by high school high schoolers, and they had to report on a, a issue facing their generation or facing young people, and it's crazy. Like so many Chat GPT articles, and they're mm. so much like they're so onto this, and they know that this is going to mm. be a fundamental shift. So I can't even imagine. Like social media was scary for us. So see what happens for them. That means a good point. I mean, this is why we're coming back to it, right? Why we basically are covering this once a week because the developments here are pretty stark. Well, Schumer has been getting a lot of attention for um, trying to push for some greater transparency and some early regulation in the AI front, um, including requiring that identification of who trained an algorithm and who its intended audience is, disclosure of data sources, and explanation for how any artificial intelligence arrives at a specific response if requested, and some transparent and strong ethical boundaries. And so this is renewed some conversation around, you know, older politicians regulating burgeoning uh, industries and whether or not there's a place for the government here. Elon Musk was just on Tucker Carlson's show talking about how he thinks that there's actually room for regulation here. And so there's there's a lot of talk. Um, and across the world, um, in 127 countries in 2016, there was just one AI bill passed versus this year, there's already been 37 or bills that mention AI, I should clarify. Clarify. Or in 2022, there were 37. So maybe even more. Oh, yeah. Now sorry. This year. Last year. Yeah. This uh, year, I'm sure, is, is even more. Absolutely. Yeah. And the global AI private investment was $91.9 billion in 2022, which is a 26.7 
percent decrease since 2022, 2021. Ariane, I don't know if you can explain that, but let's before we even get to any of that stuff. Like one of the things I want us to do on this podcast for this AI discussion, which is going to be an ongoing discussion, is we're not going to treat ourselves as experts, but we're going to try to invite on experts mm -hmm. to talk about this issue. Ariane, you had a chance to talk to an expert. Yeah, I had the uh, chance to talk to one of my favorite authors in the sort of space of cyber technology, which is um, David Kunkel. He's the professor of communications at Northern Illinois University. And um, he really went into how regulation is going to affect AI and whether regulation should even be part of the conversation of AI, right? As Ricky points out, there are really old uh, bureaucrats and politicians that are going to be determining how this technology develops. Um, and so is a, a nascent industry like AI, does it require regulation or should we just let it grow? And for Gunkel, uh, regulation certainly needs to be a part of the conversation when it comes to AI. In fact, one of the ideas for regulation that he proposed was something that happened in, back in my college days when I had to propose a certain study, it had to go to an institutional review board. And here's him talking about how that might be a template the government could follow. So I think the smart move in terms of regulating these technologies is to come up with a federal framework by which we can then on a more regional scale start to develop some very sensitive but intelligent ways of dealing with some of these challenges and these opportunities. Um, I can give you a really good example of how we've done this in the past but I think it provides us with a little bit of a model for how to uh, proceed. Um, we at universities have to have what are called uh, institutional review boards for doing experimentation on human subjects. And that is mandated by some federal guidelines that say that you can't do experiments on human subjects without getting their consent and about uh, having some ethical mandates in place to protect these individuals. What we're seeing right now, especially with the large language models, is a massive international-wide experimentation on human beings uh, with these new algorithms and applications. And the industries that are doing these things, like Google, who said that the Google Bard algorithm is an experiment. Well, if it's an experiment, it would be good for us to follow other forms of experimentation that social scientists do when they involve human subjects. I mean, that's a fascinating idea. I'd, I'd not really thought of AI as an experiment. And I think part of the issue here that makes me a little bit pessimistic in the... even. I, I'm like, I lean a little bit towards regulation if it could be international, especially like mm -hmm. through treaties, because obviously if the U.S. bans it, it, it only, you know, it, it, it doesn't mean a whole lot. If China's having a country. field day if we ban it. Well, you'd think, although, Ariane, as you were kind of explaining uh, this morning, China might be over-regulating this stuff. China is definitely, I mean, over-regulating it. But again, you know, not all regulation is built equally, right? So China's regulating it in terms of what the ethos of their AI is going to be. They've, to a certain extent, copied the European model that came out in 2021, which safeguards copyrights and all those things. But they have, you know, this another layer of uh, regulation within their proposed bill about how their AI needs to promote socialist values and cannot speak against the communist government. Um, and so mm -hmm. regulation takes many different forms. One form of regulation that I... Well, before we go there, sorry, Ariane, I just want to pause there because why is that significant is, correct me if I'm wrong, yeah, people would be like, well, okay, like you just censor the government stuff, they could do all the other innovation. But from what I understand, this stuff is so unwieldy and unpredictable that you're taking a huge risk in China if you develop a model. Like, let's say you create the ChatGPT version for China and you just let it flourish. Mm -hmm. You can't really control if it decides to start being, you know, counter-revolutionary <laughs> or revolutionary, you know, like, like it, it, and that, that could be a life or death decision. Yeah, I'm curious, though, how, how much of that is just kind of for show and to kind of spook developers because you... I mean, chat GPT, you can't get on Facebook and any of our other social media or like social exported products online in China. It's very easy to access chat GPT. It's not, it's not as easy as it is here, but it's easy to circumvent any sort of firewall that they have. Um, and I think that's probably by design. I, I think China would rather their 
their citizens have access to this technology to better understand what we're doing with it. Um, but one thing that I thought was interesting, I saw Fire put out a, a video recently, um, even on our domestic like AI creation websites, you can't, you can, um, you can satirize Trump and Putin and whoever, but not G. Um, and Xi Jinping, that could be on every AI too. I think they were talking to a specific one, right? I think it, um, Joe, if you could look that up, I I fire uh recently talked about it, but I'm pretty sure it's open AI, I want to say. But it's Joe, why don't you put something into chat GPT right now (laughs) asking it to satirize Xi Jinping? No, so it's it's the it's the photo creation one, it's like the AI art one that they Mm -hmm. that you couldn't make unflattering images, yeah. Of, of him, which yep. goes to show that even if if we feel like this is our personal innovation that America is making, like there are still Chinese influences in the same way that there might be in movies or mm-hmm. the NBA. And like there's there's international things at play as well. Yeah. And I, I do want to stay on this question of censorship for a second and how it affects China's ability to develop this tool. Because Ariane, you and I have been in a long conversation about India and India's recent slate of anti-press, anti-media laws. And, you know, you and I have spoken to producers of film and TV, people in that space who are very clear in that, like, it's stifling innovation in that sector because there's an ambiguity. You don't know what the law is. You don't want to be punished. And when when you come to China, when it comes to China, yes, like people can circumvent you know, the, the certain restrictions using VPNs and all that, although that is punishable like severely if you do that oh, no, and you you're can, it, there's going on the wrong show. They literally just have to use a different phone number. Like it, there's not this, this seems to be a gaping hole that I, I'm just going to speculate is intentional because I think China knows darn well that, that they benefit from, from developers in China using our technology and understanding it and interacting with it. But, but you, let me take that as a given because that's a whole separate conversation about what China's intention is on that. But let's take it for a given that that they are allowing that loophole. It's still our innovation now because like like all that's feed not our but it's OpenAI's innovation. It's these companies like Google, uh, Microsoft. Under that world, all that data is feeding back into non-Chinese companies' uh, uh, models. So this is where I'm starting to think that China, this whole debate around whether China is somehow eating America's lunch on this issue. Ariane, I'd be curious to your opinion on this because I think you wrote something today on this, like in our research. You seem to share. I think you sh- you're with me on this. That it's. Not, I'm not quite. I'm not convinced that China is ahead of us on this or that they're setting up the right environment for innovation here. No, I don't. I, I, A, I talked to uh, the science writer, uh, Fro- Ronald Bailey from Reason, and you know he speculated as to how far China has gotten technologically, right? Not just about the templates they're setting up or the laws they're setting up. Technologically, they have this version of chat GPT that, you know, industry experts say is not nearly as good as chat GPT. So just on the technological front at the present moment, they're not close to US. But in just in terms of the sort of template they're setting up. Now, these templates with something with regards to, okay, don't speak against the communist government or stuff like that. The implications this will have are things we do not understand. And I'll give you an example of the insidious effects of regulating um, AI. And this this example is pertaining to US, for example. Um, there was this piece of star research out of Stanford quoted by Nate Jones on the um, cyber, cyber Law podcast, podcast by Reason. And, you know, the Stanford researchers were just trying to figure out, well, there's so much conversation about bias in AI, right? That AI uses data and biases its own results based on the data that it's eating. And so let's just see what bias AI naturally has. Say we don't give it filters. Say we don't, say, make a moral decision based on certain factors. What will AI naturally come to? And so what they did was they made, you know, unfiltered AI, several AI search engines, fill out as many public polls as they could. And an unfiltered AI answered those public polls public polls as a low-income minority independent male when there were no filters. And so it was incredibly Mm. fascinating to see that's the, you know, the result it was coming at. The moment they added filters that reinforced a human worldview, it was answering like rich liberals. 
Now, you oh, see, man, there's so much to say about this. Right, right. But do you, do you see how a small template... Party. But do you see how a small template, small change in template has this insidious effect that will have a domino effect in the decisions made by the AI in the future? I mean, what a fascinating point, Ricky. Because what he just described yeah. is essentially what happens when you take those same polls and you filter it through the Democratic Party establishment, right? It's like they, they create this elaborate apparatus to speak for the downtrodden mm. and wind up reflecting their own values back. Like, I mean, there couldn't be a better metaphor. Wow. Yeah, By the way, Ricky, you were right about the you're right about the mid journey allowing to satirize Joe Biden and Putin, but not Xi Jinping. What was that? T- yeah, what crazy. was the tool? Mid journey. Mid journey. It's the one that right. we were making all that art on back in the day. Like that's oh, an American yeah. company. Yeah. So China's China's interest here is impacting us in a way that it, it clearly shouldn't, but it is. But I want to also just push back a little bit on the idea that like we should put too much meaning into where China is literally right now in comparison to us, because I would say, at least from my perspective, I'm shocked by how quickly we've innovated on this front. And I think it's not about this moment right now. Like I think whoever's leading this race can change so quickly. And if there's one party between the two of us, that's going to do the thing of like, oh, we're, this is dangerous to jobs and the economy and we should pause and we should pull back, or even we should be transparent and put our algorithms out there. Like that China could just outpace us. And we can't even imagine how quickly that could happen because I think, I don't think any of us could really imagine how quickly we've gotten here. The the way this was explained to me recently by somebody who's in the industry is that it's like, it's like wealth gaps, so yes, you can close the wealth gap. Like in some some countries have done remarkable things pretty quickly, like South Korea, for example, historically. But it's like a interest bearing account where it accelerates. Like there are power laws involved in AI. And by the way, I'm speaking strictly without the technical know how on this. So I'm just this is, I'm just reflecting back what I, what was told to me is that there are power laws in AI that. The, the people who have early success will have a huge advantage moving forward, like the chat GPTs, because there's more interactivity now that's giving it more and more information to make it, quote unquote, better. But with that said, I think, and I don't, I don't know, I don't know the answer to this, but there's one thing I do want to spend some time on here, Ariane, is when we talk about regulation, there are three, three sort of goals that are sometimes in intention. And I want you to explain these for our audience and how you know how this tension plays out. One is accuracy, one is interpretability, which is a new word I just learned this morning, and the third is security. And when we're trying to regulate AI, we have to balance those interests and come up with your own sense of which of those is most important. I think um, let me you know focus in on one of those buckets that you laid out because I think this is where government regulation is important and this is where I think the libertarian argument about no no let this industry just you know t- take birth as it does and let innovation happen kind of doesn't align and that is interpretability. Now I also came across this in the research and it's fascinating interpretability in AI essentially is trying to understand how the particular AI came to the decision that it did. So you know, let's just zoom out for a second. The society we live in is founded on, or the you know, the laws we have are founded on a certain sense of blame and personal responsibility. That you know, as actors in the society, we take responsibility for our own actions. Now, the problem with AI or where AI is heading is we soon might not be able to attribute responsibility because we won't be able to figure out how it arrived at the decision it did. Now, if from the get-go we do not involve or incorporate um, interpretability into the legal framework in which AI is being developed, we'll get to a stage where this cannot be backtraced anymore. And so we'll be left in the situation where, you know, the AI researchers will not be culpable for the AI they're creating and the decisions of that AI because they even didn't know how that AI came to that conclusion. A small example will be the one laid out by Dr. Gunkel in our conversation about AI making, frankly, racist decisions. Because these... uh machine learning systems are basically neural networks that are set up and trained on data. Oftentimes, we don't know what decisions they're going to kick out until they do. And then they may have an adverse effect on individuals and communities. Uh, There's some very famous examples of facial recognition algorithms uh, classifying non-Caucasian people as animals 
uh, which is absolutely horrible. And Google had to pull the plug on that right away. But when this happens, the engineers often are surprised as much as we are surprised by these outcomes. And one of the uh, initiatives has been to make sure that when an algorithmic decision affects you, you should be able to get an explanation as to how and why that happened and that you should be able to have full transparency regarding how that decision was reached and what went into mitigating uh, various variables that are at play in that decision-making process. Again, the EU, I think, has a stronger regulatory environment for explainability and transparency. The U.S. has very little right now. And obviously, this is one of the things that I hope Schumer and uh, his colleagues will be looking at as we move forward. What say you, Libertarian Ricky? I want to hear. I want to hear Ricky's reaction to that. I mean, I'm I I'm not an anarchist, and I think that there is a, <laughs> a place for regulation because this is so unprecedented. But I do share um, some of Ronald Bailey's concerns about what I mean. Even like a couple months ago, we couldn't write the law to regulate what we have today in terms of AI. And I think he's right that early regulation and in specifically early regulation that lasts is a dangerous thing. Because if we were to, I mean, first of all, I don't think that our members of Congress are necessarily the people that are best equipped to understand this technology, um, nor am I. But I think, you know, th- we know how hard it is to change, to pass laws, to get bipartisan agreement. I do think that we uniquely have that right now, but those laws are very quickly going to be outdated. I think there's um, an inability to revise them could really stifle innovation. Um, I also think, you know, these these larger companies are um, in the same way that Facebook recently was kind of saying, yeah, like regulate us where we, we'd love that. And so I think it would potentially harm smaller companies if we're making regulations based on these larger these larger bodies that are more able to reach all these thresholds of transparency or whatever we might require of an AI company. Like I do think having smart startups and smaller scale things is important, but I also would just say my, my biggest concern, even if we do have an expert board is I, I would be worried about how democratic that could truly be because I mean we already know if you if the makers of AI have some sort of internal bias that the AI could run wild with that or not look like the typical person um, and I the the creation of an expert class that's interested only in protecting or is blinded by their own interests in this in this realm. Um, I do think the experts are very important here, but I do, I do worry about creating this self-regulatory board that could potentially lose sight of the general person's skin in the game here. I so one thing I want to make sure we talk about before we move off of this subject is there was a letter signed by Wozniak, Wozniak Elon Musk, uh, Yuval Harari um, that mm-hmm. called uh, called for a pause to big uh, AI experiments. And it's a really fascinating read. We should put it in the show notes. And they asked some questions. They said, should we let machines flood our information channels with propaganda on untruth? Should we automate away all the jobs, including the fulfilling ones? Should we develop non-human minds that might eventually outnumber, outsmart, obsolete and replace us? Should we risk loss of control of our civilization? Such decisions must not be delegated to unelected tech leaders. Powerful AI systems should be developed only once we are confident that their effects will be positive and their risks will be manageable. They call for uh, all AI labs to pause for at least six months, the training of AI systems, uh, and not to make anything more advanced than GPT-4 at the moment. And then they call for a series of changes, mandating robust third-party auditing and certification, regulating access to computational power, establishing capable AI agencies at the national level, establishing liability for AI-caused harms, introducing measures to prevent and track AI model leaks, expanding technical AI safety research funding, and developing standards for identifying and managing AI-generated content and recommendations. That is a lot of stuff. Uh, And Elon Musk, of all people, signed this, a guy who generally Mm -hmm. is not a fan of regulation and doesn't throw around terms like misinformation. uh, Yeah, I I, I wouldn't be too, um, you know happy about Musk signing on to it because he requested a six-month pause and has just recently announced his own AI company. So, you know, I don't see how those Whoa, two he's, things he's work together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go figure. I, it, yeah, I think it's more that he'll get time to 
but I'm just reading into his intentions of you mm-hmm. know new AI startup. I I do have one thing to add regarding Ricky's point about regulation. I don't think I agree with you that it's not like the you know the board that they'll create will have the best interest of the general person in mind. But definitely the tech CEOs that are building this do not have that in mind. And so we need to have some kind of regulation or regulatory regulatory framework that protects the normal the normal citizen of you know uh, US. I think I mean genuinely I I feel like this is the place where we could have like ballot initiatives and make this like a truly democratic thing because it's impossible to weigh all the competing interests of people in different industries and all the different applications. And I, I, I almost, I I do think that there's obviously space for experts in this conversation, but I think that we would make a huge mistake by having like some sort of board of, of the enlightened few that know what's best for AI and all of its innumerable applications. Yeah, I think, so as we close this out, just final impression here is, I think this is one of those things that not enough people understand. You know, I certainly don't yep. understand it. Like Does I anyone? count on the fact that Schumer, yeah, I don't even know if the people who create this understand it. It's like it's like the conversation on crypto times a million. And I think in that sense, one of two things is going to happen. Either there is a aggressive, uh, simple solution to slow everything down and a, like a panic that leads to a stoppage of some sorts that's pretty blanket. Or uh, this stuff is just going to grow and it's going to grow to wherever it's going to be. We may tinker it with it here and there, but it's so powerful, so fast, so, you know, ill understood that the capacity of people to technocratically tinker with this is just not going to keep up with this technology. And if I were a betting man, I'd bet on the latter. Uh, especially since like in order to truly quote unquote stop it or slow it down, you need an international treaty. How often are we seeing those things on anything meaningful these days? So with that, very optimistic take. Uh, we'll thank our <laughs> listeners. Uh, <laughs> make sure to leave us a voicemail, 321-200-0570. We will be back Tuesday uh, unless some major world event happens. Uh, we'll be doing a trendy Tuesday uh, next Tuesday. So send in voicemails with your ideas of what we should cover or tweet at us and we'll be right back here. The Lost Debate is the flagship show from The Branch. Our executive producer is Nick Perrone, research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, audio editing by Dean Metherell. 